0: Take your Bibles. We're going to look in John chapter two, and uh, and then if you if you want to kind of prepare for where we're going to be going, we're going to be looking after that in Second Kings chapter four, and then we'll come back to John and look at John six and so. But we'll be basically staying in John chapter two this morning. There is often uh, a little bit of pressure when someone stands behind the pulpit. There's a little bit of expectation. Uh, There's some thought put into it, uh, uh, some anticipation that something worthwhile will be given from behind this desk. Uh, You came with that anticipation. Uh, You came with an expectation that something would be said worthwhile. And, uh, And so as I began considering what I was going to share with you today, everybody comes to this moment prepared to share with you something, some point. In uh, seminary, I remember one of my professors was asked, how many points should a sermon have? And he said, my friend, at least one. (laughs) Uh, uh, It also reminds me of some other things I learned in seminary. One of them was from a great homiletics professor. First day of homiletics, he looked at us and said, fellas, sat on the desk. Kind of folded his feet, waved them back and forth under the desk because he sat there. He said, "Fellas, if you have nothing to say, at least project." And uh, and so this morning, uh, I've sort of decided I'm going to talk to you today about nothing. Uh, everybody talks about something. I thought this morning we'd talk about nothing. And so looking in John chapter 2, if you'll follow along as I read, on the third day, a wedding took place in Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Dear woman, "'Why do you involve me?' Jesus replied. "'My time has not yet come.' "'His mother said to the servants, "'Do whatever he tells you.' "'Nearby stood six stone water jars, "'the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, "'each holding from 20 to 30 gallons.' Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who drew the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine, after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. And then verse 11 really is our text. This... First of his miraculous signs Jesus performed in Cana in Galilee he thus revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him the word of God thanks be to God the verse ends by saying and thus he revealed his glory How do you make an effort to make an entrance? When you want to make a first impression with splash, with fireworks, with pomp and circumstance of the splendid or do you try to make a first impression with the mundane realities of life like an unfinished meal and empty glasses? Now of all the ways to begin your ministry If Jesus had consulted with me, I probably would have told him to begin your ministry with something that would catch people's attention. Start your ministry with the resurrection of Lazarus. That'll get the buzz going. That'll get people talking about it. Why would you start your ministry at an unfinished party with empty glasses? But there was something about this moment, at this unfinished party that Jesus chose as the perfect time to, according to our text, reveal his glory. The word reveal is the word fanerao, which means to render apparent, to make seen what has heretofore been hidden. To reveal, and then the word glory is the word you're probably very familiar with. It's the word dogza. It's that general New Testament word for glory, for honor, for praise, for worship. There was something about this moment that so moved the heart of God that he chose to inaugurate his ministry here. And By the time our morning is over, my hope is that we'll be able to leave the room with a sense ourselves of what it was about this moment that attracted the maximum attention of God. Now, before we pray, let me suggest to you this morning that for a moment, you consider with me what would it be like if I, for a moment, had the maximum attention of God. What would it be like? What would it be like if just for a moment this morning, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords was not distracted by the war in Iraq or by your neighbor's sin, but if just for a moment, he were to bring all of his attention to you, just for a moment, what would that feel like? I think it would feel like I know that there's nothing hidden in my life, that that God knows my address, He is aware of everything missing in my life, and He knows how to fill it. What would it be like if God, for a moment, gave you His complete and undivided attention? And then, of course, I'm reminded that, that God is able to bring His full and complete attention to each one of us without diminishing any of His deity. And so, as we go to prayer this morning, let's remember that he's able to give each of us his full and undivided attention. Lord, as we consider your word today and as we consider the topic of nothing, I do pray that that you would show us what it was about this moment that attracted your attention and called for you to act. In Jesus' name, amen. Once there was a woman who had nothing. She had no husband, she had no income, she had no food, she had no money, and no prospects, nothing. She was the mother of two boys. Her late husband's creditor was already on his way to claim them as his slaves. And so she came to the man of God. She came to the man of God with nothing. So if you want to turn with me to 2 Kings 4, holding your place in John. In 2 Kings 4, verses 1 and 2, A certain woman of the wives of the sons of the prophets cried out to Elisha, saying, Your servant, my husband, is dead. And you know that your servant feared the Lord. And the creditor is coming to take my two sons to be his slaves." So if you understand the picture here, one of Elisha's associate pastors has gone out and run up a huge credit card bill and then died, leaving his wife with all of the bills unprepared. And now she gets word that the creditors are coming in order to take payment for his debts. They're going to take her only two sons. Verse number two, Elisha said to her, what shall I do for you? It almost sounds exactly like what Jesus said to his mother in the old King James. Woman, what should I do for you? Elisha says, tell me, what do you have in the house? And she said, your maidservant has nothing. Nothing in the house but a jar of oil. One terrified desperate woman was about to learn something from nothing. And she must have listened in amazement as the prophet gave her the following instructions. Then he said, go, borrow vessels from everywhere. From all your neighbors, get all the empty vessels. Do not gather just a few. And when you have come in, you shall shut the door behind you and your sons. Then pour into all those vessels and set aside the full ones. It was as if the prophet looked at her and said, there is not enough, nothing here. I want you to collect all the emptiness of your neighborhood. I want you to get as much as you can beg, as much as you can borrow Go to everybody in your whole area and get all their nothing and bring their nothingness and their emptiness and put it in your house with your nothingness and then close the doors, just you and your boys. And so the widow did what he said. She gathered up all the nothing she had. She gathered all the nothing she, she could borrow and she went into her empty house with sons no longer her own. And I think it was at that moment that God smiled and said, now you have enough nothing. Verse 5. So she went from him, shut the door behind her and her sons who brought the vessels to her, and she poured it out. Now it came to pass when the vessels were full. Now a lot happens between verses 5 and 6 She begins pouring what little oil she has left. She pours it into the first vessel, and to her surprise, it gets fuller and fuller and fuller. And as it nears the brim, she looks at one of her sons and says, get another cup. He gets another cup. She begins to fold that vessel. And she fills vessel after vessel after vessel. Until every empty vessel in the entire house is full of oil. Then she said to her son, Bring me another vessel. And he said to her, There is not another vessel. So then the oil ceased. And then from the proceeds of her emptiness, from her filled jars of oil, she paid her debts. She redeemed her sons. She earned a living. Now, I'll admit it, (laughs) I'm incredibly drawn by Jesus' interest in my nothing. How his eye seems to linger on the empty things. How he prefers to lead people through empty places. How he relishes wrestling beauty and splendor out of a vacuum how he smiles when I look and point at my inventory sheet that tallies zero. I think of Philip as he was climbing the hillside with Jesus and the other disciples, and and as Jesus began to teach his disciples, it seemed like people began to come out of the very hillside, first dozens, then hundreds, and then thousands of people. And as they began to gather around Jesus, Jesus turns... To Philip and says to him in John 6, just a few chapters after where we're studying, he looks at Philip and says, where shall we buy bread that these may eat? And for a moment, Philip freezes. He wonders if it's one of those trick questions that Jesus is always asking. But he thinks to himself, this is probably a merely an accounting question. And so he begins to notice how many people are present. He sort of does the math in his own mind. He says to himself, okay, bread sells for so much per loaf, and you multiply that by the number of people. You divide that by the number of bites per loaf. He figured out how many children were there, how many teenagers were there. He made an assumption there were 5,000 adult men there, and then he did his computations. He looked at Jesus and gave Jesus the answer that he asked for. He said, Jesus, even 200 denarii wouldn't be enough to feed all of them. But if you really want to feed them... 200 days wages in short Philip looked at Jesus and said we got nothing (laughs) He, he looked at he looked at the other disciples and says do you have anything and Andrew said well I got this one boy with one lunch and it's like Philip said no 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 that's nothing he looked at Judas and said is there any money in the money bag can you recount that Judas do we have anything he looked at Jesus and said we've got nothing Then Jesus said, make the people sit down. There was much gra- grass in the place. And so the men sat down in number about 5,000. You see, Philip had a lot to learn about Jesus Christ and nothing. It was almost as if Jesus seeing empty stomachs and seeing the nothingness around him. And this is what is unique about Jesus Christ is that when he walks into the room, nothing is what grabs his attention. We see what is full, we see what's overflowing, we see the importance, we see the wealthy, we see the well-insured, and Jesus sees the emptiness. Philip had a lot to learn. I mean, after all, hadn't he been at the wedding in Cana just a few chapters before John chapter 6? Hadn't he remembered the dinner party that came to nothing? A wedding with no wine left. Now listen, one simply did not have a wedding without wine. You do not have a party with no wine. Better to have wine and no party than party and no wine. And yet there they were, all the guests, all the dignitaries, piles of aunts and uncles, heaps of brothers and sisters and cousins, bride and the groom and no wine. And that's about the time that Jesus noticed six large stone water jars. The jars were empty, profoundly empty, and it was just enough nothing to catch Jesus' attention. The wedding Philip was remembering may have been the wedding of Jesus' sister. After all, Jesus and all of his disciples seemed to be involved and Jesus' mother seemed to be in charge. We're not sure whose wedding it is, but for some reason Jesus' mother was given some feeling of responsibility. But whatever the reason for the wedding, in our text in John chapter 2, in verse 3, it says, "...when they ran out of wine..." the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Notice with me, it was an unfinished party. An unfinished party. You see, the length of a party depended on the wealth of the family. If you were very wealthy, you would plan on a two-week-long party and you would provide enough party to last the length that you advertised for. And it was critical in planning to know how long the party would last and how many people you would invite to make sure you had enough wine. If the party did not last as long as intended, either the the family was planning out of their league or they simply failed to plan well. It was an unfinished party filled with unsatisfied people. Verse number 3 again says, They have no wine. And the truth is that sooner or later, the wine does run out. Sooner or later, the party is over. Jesus noticed in the foyer of the home that there were six unfilled pots. They were there for a reason. These six stone pots, the scripture tells us, They were between 20 and 30 gallons each. We know from history and from archaeology that these stones were probably carved out of one gigantic stone. The larger the pot, the wealthier the home. This home had six pots, probably at least as tall as me. And when you would walk into the home, the wealthiest guest came first. And the reason that they call these ceremonial cleansing pots is because you'd go to the first pot and the first pot was for your fingers. You'd dip your fingers in the pot and the wealthiest guy got to go first. He'd come in after traveling, he'd put his fingers in, then he'd go to the next pot and he'd put his elbows in. He'd go to the next pot and he'd do his pits. He'd go to the next pot and he'd do his feet and he'd cleanse his whole body, a ceremonial cleansing. And then the next, just slightly less influential, slightly slightly less wealthy, individual would come in and he would do the same, the same water, 20 to 30 gallons each, six pots, he'd reach in, now there's a little water spilled on the floor because the first guy that went through uh, had spilled a little water, the next guy also spills a little water, gets water up, does his fingers, does his arms, does his pits, does his feet, gets all the way through all six pots until finally you and I arrive. The pot is almost empty. You're reaching down to the bottom of this stone pot to try and get a little bit of the water. And let me just ask you to imagine with me what the water must have looked like by the time you would have arrived, by the time I would have arrived. Most of the water is out of the pot. It's on the floor. Quite frankly, it would probably smell just a little bit. I don't know when Jesus and the disciples got there, but I know that when Jesus got there... From the very moment we see him interacting, he has noticed six empty pots. At the beginning of the party, they'd been filled. Well, there's something about nothing that moves God's hand. In Job chapter 26 and verse 7, it says about God that he stretches out the north over empty space. He hangs the earth on nothing. In Latin, we know he created ex nihilo, out of nothing. It's almost as if, to God the Father, he looked out and when he saw all that nothing, he had to hang something on it. And so he created the world on nothing. Richard Wurmbrand was a man who knew something about nothing. Richard Wurmbrand was a prisoner of conscience who, uh, having been arrested by the communists out of Romania, found himself traveling to Bucharest and put into a solitary cell where he spent 14 years serving in a communist prison because of his faith in Jesus Christ. And during those 14 years, never wearing shoes, tortured the whole time. Solitary confinement let out only briefly and when he did so, he found that other Christians in that same prison were serving in other cells and they discovered a way of communicating with one another. Richard Wormbrand indicated in his autobiography that they were able to tap on the pipes connecting the rooms and they were able to tap on the pipes in such a way that they taught each other a language and were able to communicate over those 14 years. And as the years went by, those Christians in those cells, in that basement of that Bucharest building, began to long to share the Lord's table together to celebrate the sacrament of communion. But they had nothing. They had no church building. They had no music, no bread, no wine, no clergy. How do you have communion with nothing? But wait, one of Wormbrand's. Fellow prisoners tapped. Nothing has to be something, or you wouldn't have it. And consider God hung the world on nothing. It has to be the strongest substance in the world, stronger than steel, stronger than diamonds. And my brothers, it is all we have. And so they communicated through tapping. And they said, I'm now holding a nothing cup with nothing in it. And they all tapped, we're holding our cup with you. And so with nothing in their hands, they broke bread. With nothing on their lips, they drank the cup. And with reverent taps on rusty sewer pipes, they worshiped the God who is the giver of everything. Years later... Wormbrand would remember lots of communion services, but none sweeter, <laughs> none more meaningful. How deeply that must have moved the heart of God. And like Paul Harvey says, there is a rest of the story. Just a few years ago, an 80-plus-year-old Richard Wormbrand was invited back to Bucharest for the inauguration of the first Christian bookstore in post-communist Bucharest. Now hobbled because of his torture, he moved around that Christian bookstore, the first in living memory, And then they invited Richard Wormbrand and his wife to go downstairs into the basement. Going downstairs, they, they walked him into a warehouse room now stuffed with Bibles and Christian books. And a look of puzzlement came over his face and then shock and then joy when he realized that the storehouse room for the Christian bookstore, was his old cell. And he looked around at piles of books and Bibles in a room where he celebrated communion with nothing. Now it was overflowing with God's word. There is something about nothing that demands the full attention of God. If Wormbrand needed an exclamation point, he received it. When a man or woman finally brings nothing to God, he takes it seriously. You see, despite it being unfinished party with unsatisfied people with unfilled pots, we have an unfailing person. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. This was not a small task. 20 to 30 gallons each. He didn't say fill one of them. He said fill all the pots with water. And so the servants had been told by Jesus' mother to do whatever he said. And so they probably would have had to take empty buckets, walk down empty streets and go to the nearest well, throw those empty buckets down that well and pull them up. And trip after trip after trip, they had to fill those six stone water pots, and the scripture says they filled them up to the rim. Now, the Bible does not say that they cleaned the pots first. It doesn't say anything about that. It just says that Jesus told them, fill the pots up. And they filled up the pots. And then, verse 8, Jesus said to them, draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. Now, I'm not sure what took more faith If it was the servants filling the water pots or if it was the servant, probably the master servant, the chief servant, who reached the ladle into the pot and he knew what had been in the pot. He knew who had put his hands in there and who had put his elbows in there and who had washed their pits and their feet and he stuck that ladle in the water. He didn't know what he was going to do with it. Jesus hadn't given him any instructions except now take some of the water. He put the ladle in, filled it up and probably held it as far from his nose as he could. And then Jesus said, Now take that to the master of the feast. If I had been the servant, I would have had some second thoughts. I would have given some consideration to the stench water I have just put in my ladle. But the Bible says he carried it to the master of the house. And he hands it to the master of the house, praying that the master was drunk enough not to know where he got the water. And I love the humor in the text. It even says, the master didn't know where the water came from, but the servants did. They're all standing by. They're waiting to see what's going to happen with this water where they know where it came from. He brings the ladle up to his mouth, and they're all getting their resumes ready, you know. And he drinks it. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us at what point the water turned into wine. I, I don't know. But when it touched his lips, we know it was wine. The master of the feast called the bridegroom, and said to him, every man at the beginning sets out good wine, and when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior. You have kept the good wine till now. It was an unfinished party with unsatisfied people with unfilled pots, but we have an unfailing savior. Christ never fails. Christ never falters. Christ never faints. Now, in comparison with Richard Wormbrand, I've had everything in life. I had a mom and a dad that took care of me, went to good schools, and yet there are days when, in spite of all that I've been blessed with, I still feel, sometimes, empty, as if all the sky over Tennessee was somehow pressed into my chest. You can call it discouragement, You can call it very early midlife readjustment. You can call it an artistic temperament or you can call it burnout. But it all feels like nothing. But I have a lot to learn about Jesus Christ and nothing. I'm coming to understand emptiness for what it is. Emptiness is one of the Lord's greatest gifts. I can remember empty feelings from earliest childhood. I remember laying on the beach just down from my parents' house in Pensacola, staring up at the sky. I remember the silence broken only by the wind and the sea glades, and I remember feeling homesick, a stone's throw from my house. Because I was longing for something. I was longing for someone I had not even met. There was nothing inside of me looking for something. And that nothing brought me to Jesus Christ. That's when I learned how God can use nothing. That there's an emptiness that sets our hearts to aching to wandering, to searching. And in every one of us, at some time or another, we've sensed that nothing inside that calls out to be filled. We look in the eyes of people with whom we live, with whom we work, and with whom we play, that inside, despite the car they drive or the house they live in, there's nothing inside that's crying out for something. That nothing was put inside you by God. And it cries out to be filled. Only recently did it occur to me that if I am empty, I am empty of something. Emptiness means a realization of a need. It is this emptiness that finally tears me away from stupid, hollow distractions from lifeless preoccupations. The scripture talks about the emptiness of a slowly withering branch dying for the sap of the vine. It talks about the emptiness of a Samaritan woman who brings an empty bucket to a well deeper than she knows. It's the emptiness of a prodigal son who suddenly awakens to a shriveled heart and the stench of a hog pen and says, I will set out to return to my Father. It's the emptiness of Simon Peter. Now remember, Simon Peter gave up fishing. He gave up his career to follow Jesus Christ who looked at him and said, Hey, come, follow me. I'll make you a fisher of men. And so Peter does... And after following Jesus and following him to the cross and seeing him crucified, now discouraged, alone, disenfranchised, and maybe even a little empty, Peter says in John 21, the same book in which we are looking at the end of it, John 21 and verse 3, he looks at those around him and says what every empty man says, (laughs) I'm going fishing. He wants to do something he's good at this religion thing has not worked out this church thing hasn't worked out the man he put all of his stock in has died and is buried I'm going fishing And everybody around him sort of followed Peter good bad ugly whatever they followed Peter I'm going fishing they all said we're going with you they went out and immediately got into the boat and that night you remember what did they catch They caught nothing! They worked so long, they tried so hard, they pushed themselves so unrelentingly through the long dark hours, and yet their nets came up sodden and empty, nothing. But they caught so much nothing that it caught the attention of one standing on the beach. It was enough nothing and enough emptiness and enough longing for something to fill them up that someone on the beach yelled out to them, friends, and I love that. I'm not a fisherman and I do not understand fishermen. But this landlubber yells out to the fishermen, friends, have you caught any fish? Fishermen are known for truthfulness. They answer truthfully, no. (laughs) And then this landlubber who doesn't look like he's ever baited a hook or thrown a net says, why don't you try throwing it on the other side? And these men are so desperate. They had just enough nothing. They were willing to listen to somebody who obviously knew nothing about fishing. They threw the nuts on the other side of the boat. Now that's desperation. I've been fishing. I went, I've been twice. And I have never caught anything. Ever. I went to the right spot with the right guide and came home with Nada. but I've never been willing to admit that until this moment right now. (laughs) You remember what happened, though, when they followed the landlubber's instruction. They pulled up a net so full of fish they were unable to haul it in. And then the disciple whom Jesus loved, John, says to Peter, it is the Lord. I know that his presence and his provision followed a long night of empty and fruitless labor. I can see that, but how I fear and dread those sessions of emptiness and profound sadness in my own life. I don't want, I don't wish for the difficult circumstances in life. I don't want to fish all night long only to reel in an empty hook. And yet, if I'm beginning to understand God's ways, I ought to look at the situation differently. It's true that I struggle with a sense of futility at times, but maybe God is pointing out that I may not yet be empty enough. The widow in 2 Kings 4 would have had more of God's provision if she had only procured more jars she didn't get enough jars she ran out of emptiness can you imagine for a moment the only thing that kept her from more was she didn't have enough nothing she was limited by her emptiness by her lack of emptiness And I think if I'm to lay hold of God's best provision, I must admit to an emptiness that is vast and not small. I have to admit that in my life there is a vast emptiness. I mean, how can I petition the King of Kings and the God of Heaven to meet some pale, puny, feeble bit of emptiness? Isn't it better to have a grand canyon of emptiness? I cannot drive into his provision station and ask him to top off my tank. Isn't it better to coast in on fumes and flat tires with an expired credit card and say, God, I come with nothing. I must not come to his banquet table when I am mostly full and ask for a sip of coffee and after dinner mint. We were in Argentina the last two weeks and uh, on one particular night I was given good instruction by our leaders to not eat during the day because we were going to a buffet. Buffet is too small a word. (laughs) They had a lamb station. They had a ribeye station. They had a salmon station. They had many dessert stations. And we sort of just got in there, sat down. I'm not sure how many times I went back to the buffet, but I am really grateful I went hungry. You see, I think God calls us to cry out. And there's something about emptiness that gravitates the eye of God. The truth is, whether we realize it or not, we are always in acute need of Jesus Christ. Apart from him, my nets are always empty, my bucket is always dry, and I am almost always out of wine. And whether I realize it or not, his presence, his blessing, and his filling is like blood in my veins and air in my lungs It must be my very life. But here's the danger point, men. It is when I do not sense my need. It is when I think I can coast by without him for a day or two. It's when I say, no thank you, my cup is already full. I think that is when we are in deadly peril. Jesus said as much to the self-satisfied Christians in Laodicea. In Revelation 3, 17, Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and do you not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked? Behold, here I am, Jesus said. I stand at the door and knock. They had forgotten that we all come with empty hands. To a similar group of smug, complacent Israelites, he cried in Psalm 81, "Hear, O my people, I will admonish you. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide, and I will fill it." There is something about the desire of a father to meet the needs of his son. I have two sons and two daughters. And I love it when they ask me for something. And I'm able, you know, to provide it. My daughter, Timian, is four, and she loves candy. That's her thing. My wife has other things she likes, but my daughter, she likes candy. And for 49 cents, I can satiate her deepest desire. (laughs) She loves candy. How much more does God look at us and say to us, that nothing inside of you that is craving something, I put that there. And I am the only one who can satisfy the deepest longings of your heart. And even though you may think for a moment that I have missed your address and I don't know where you live, may I assure you that God knows your address, He knows where you live, and He can give you this moment His maximum attention. And that by giving you His full and complete attention, it does not diminish in the smallest degree His divinity. It was an unfinished party filled with unsatisfied people, with unfilled pots. But we have an unfailing Savior. The text said that He manifested His glory. The God of glory is still waiting to manifest that today. Just as he did as the master of a wedding feast. My only question is does anybody have some empty jars that I could borrow just for a moment? Father, as we think about your attraction to the emptiness, the reality is that we can freely confess our need that apart from you, we are nothing. I bring nothing to the table of value. And yet I find myself having been on the streets now invited to the wedding. Not just invited to the wedding, but invited to the table to pull my chair up and to put my legs beneath this table. And then beyond that, you invite me to be a son not just a guest at the table, but a family member. And I'm glad, Father, that I come with nothing, empty, my best efforts falling short. But your grace is what fills us up. And I pray that we would be aware today of those with whom we work and those with whom we live and those with whom we play, that we would be attracted to their nothing and point them to a Savior who waits to fill every empty cup. In Jesus' name, amen.